Here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. People always tell me, you should have your money working for you. Because you send your money out there working for you, a lot of times it gets fired. You go back there, what happened? I had my money, it was here, it was working for me. Yeah, I remember your money. We had to let him go. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Super Terrific Happy Hour. By my side, as always, to make it all of those three things, is the wonderful Stephanie Pombo. Steph, Oh, how are you? you flatter me always. I'm good, but more importantly, how are you and your uh, second grandbaby? Yes, all, <laughs> all good. I, I, I'll i be honest, I'll be honest, the second grandbaby, not doing much at the age of two and a half weeks. <laughs> not doing an awful lot. However, really? first grandbaby is a little toddling miracle she's she's fabulous so i've had a lot of fun chasing her around and feeding ducks and doing all kinds of stuff that you get to do with grandkids which uh and then the best part at the end of the day you just hand them back and go home it's perfect it's absolutely perfect who knew fantastic oh well we have a we, we have a we have a guest joining us shortly which is nice someone who um Probably, I was going to say, needs no introduction, but he, and he won't need in, uh, introduction to many people, but to others he will, and that is uh, Tony Greer of TG Macro. And Tony's um, a dear friend of mine for uh, many years, and a really interesting guy. He's a fellow New Yorker, Steph, so the two of you will have that in common. Um, yes, I can't believe I haven't encountered him at all. This is You're making this introduction, so thank you. I'm excited. And I'm delighted to do so, and I, I think the two of you will get on famously. So, um, well, what do you say? Why don't we just Why don't we make that introduction now and bring Tony on? Why don't we? Tony Greer, welcome to the Super Terrific Happy Hour, mate. How are you? I'm great, Grant. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited for this one. We are we <laughs> are thrilled. And Stephanie, yeah, it's nice to see you guys. Nice to see you as well. We have two New Yorkers and a displaced Brit who is um, who is uh, back on home turf. So we, we've got the world covered, which means you two are mercifully saving me from watching my soccer team, who are getting thumped at the moment. So I've had to turn that off to to record this, which is which has actually made my Saturday. So thank you very much for that, you two. <laughs> <laughs> I've got nothing to do but relax today, Grant, for a change. So I am I'm literally i've got all the time in the world i'm looking out the window on a beautiful day and ready to talk markets there you go ready to stir it up ready to stir it up exactly <laughs> mix it all up now um steph and i were, were, were kicking this around a, a little bit earlier on and what we'd love to to start with is your your early days in the industry at a, a, a the, the venerable firm of jay aaron and co um it'll it's a name that was long ago swallowed up um I'll leave you to explain by whom, but perhaps you could uh, perhaps you could tell people a little bit about the firm and about your time there. Yeah, absolutely, Grant. I joined uh, Goldman Sachs in, I guess, technically '94 on the calendar, and started working there late in that year um, for Jay Aaron, which was at the time the commodity trading arm of Goldman Sachs. It had been a privately owned 
commodity trading company and Goldman Sachs bought it in its totality because to traffic in commodities, you need all kinds of physical outposts, different locations, and you need connections to exchanges and all kinds of things like that. And so Goldman Sachs just bought the commodity trading arm. Jay Aaron was largely a coffee trader. That was, uh, you know, the genesis of how they started out in commodities at that firm and then started branching out into others. And then once it got to Goldman Sachs, while there was still the original um, physical coffee trading room on the floor that I worked on, we had been trading, you know, every commodity under the sun all around the world 24-7 by that time. So, you know, it was, you know, we answered the phone, Jay Aaron, for the entire time that I was there. And just to bracket it, I was there from um, 95, well, 94, like I said, the end of 94 through the beginning of 2000. And, um, you know, the timing, if you look at the commodity <laughs> chart, was super, super conspicuous. I was just going to bring um, that I, up. but <laughs> Well, that was the great, you know, that's the great, uh, the greatest lesson I've ever gotten in my life about bubbles mm. was, you know, leaving the sleepy commodity desk at Goldman Sachs so that I could chase this uh, tech bubble that I had mm. been investing in and trading while I was there. And, you know, literally sat down to trade technology stocks in March of 2000 with the NASDAQ at 5k on its way Jesus. down. Wow. Yeah. And now I turn, now I turn around and there goes the commodity right. super cycle for 10 years. And I'm sitting there smashing the phone into my forehead. After you, you know, watch it. after you walked in the door to Jay Aaron, literally at the peak of that commodity cycle, right? I mean, 94 was the peak in that move. Yeah. The, the, right. The, the first one. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah, you know, but it was a time where commodities were kind of quiet and, you know, the, the Goldman Sachs Commodities Index was a business that had just started growing um, and it was due to essentially something that was really well sold to clients and advertised about how these commodities were at the time largely in backwardation and you could have this investment with a positive carry that had a pretty positive outlook. And, um, you know, we were pretty desk, pretty busy desk at the time. And so I worked on the Goldman Sachs Commodities Index and the gold trading desk at J. Aaron, which were kind of sat side by side next to the energy trading area. So Tony, take us back to that period and talk a little bit about how that commodities market functioned at the time. Because, it, again, everything's changed and commodity markets probably more so than many others, I want to imagine. Yeah, the commodity markets were, you know, they were steeped still when I, you know, when I had joined, um, Jay Aaron, they were still very much focused on exchange trading, you know, the, and, and physical trading in futures pits. And that's when there were, when I say physical trading, I say what that's when the physical pit was filled with brokers, you know, and, um, you know, the gold ring would be, you know, three steps, uh, three steps high and probably 400 brokers all standing around shoulder to shoulder trading gold. And that was um, what was cool about it was that was sort of the exchange and your relationships on the exchange were part of your information network where you got the understanding of what the world looked like from the brokers on the exchange as they handled the business from the upstairs desks and they looked up at the world and sort of, you know, what it looked like to them. And then, of course, you had the physical side of trading, which was the interbank market, if you wanted to call it, where you trade commodities, mostly gold and silver, platinum, with another counterpart in the market where you sort of had an agreement that you could call each other for prices for liquidity. So, um, you know, to give you that, that was 
sort of that were outward facing um, from the commodities desk was we had this sort of futures world and physicals world that were our liquidity. Um, and that also became very much how we shaped our risk at J. Aaron. We used to have tremendous R positions, even bigger than our directional positions in a commodity would be our positions of physical commodity versus the exchange. So I don't know if you know, Grant, but there's an EFP exchange physical price that I'm sure you're somewhat aware of that there's the difference between you know, the spot price and the exchange price. And so we used to figure out how to exploit that in good size. And that was part of our trading tactic. Um, and so to sort of bring you out a little bit further, we had, um, you know, we had the interbank market as our liquidity, the futures market as our liquidity and our information. And then we had the upstairs desk that we sat on. And that was uh, another multifaceted operation because we were would be the center between all of our clients calling us and providing liquidity to them and then everybody around the firm that would also be trading commodities through us. So you had the responsibility, you know, pretty much all day to be quoting clients, managing the risk in your book and managing the risk for other people, providing liquidity for proprietary traders that were trading in your product. So it was a very tricky um, job to be sitting there either either as the commodity dealer or as the gold dealer or the silver dealer because you're quoting prices and providing liquidity for clients and everything goes through you and that's a 24 operation in commodities. So it was the kind of thing, Grant, where you're we, we always looked at it where our week wasn't a five-day week. It was one marathon session from Sunday to Friday. You know, Sunday, we, we spoke every Sunday afternoon um, with my old metals boss, Chris Carrera, who's still a dear friend of mine. And, you know, the week started at three o'clock with a phone call where we discussed, you know, what our positions look like, what our objectives were for the week, you know, starting with what we were going to do that night on the TOCOM you know, for our exchange position or for our directional positions and sort of plotting out what we wanted to accomplish by the end of the week. And so then, you, you know, start Sunday night and it was, you know, pretty, pretty much like I said, 24 seven liquidity providing for, you know, your clients. And that meant also having relationships all around the world. So that was a different part. Um, you know, the next leg of your operation was you had people that you could call in Tokyo and the Tokyo time zone for liquidity. If somebody called, if one of the traders from the desk called you up and said, okay, I want to sell my gold now, or I want to buy some silver now. So then you would go to those desks for us in a different time zone, trade with them. You'd be developing a relation with them. And this is, I'm talking about other metals dealers and banks and other time zones. And then you'd have your London center where you'd have sort of the J. Aaron London desk as the hub there, but you would have other relationships in London. So all of this together um, was sort of, you know, the, the, the entirety of the blocking and tackling that went into every day just before you sat down to trade and decide what you wanted to do in the markets. And then that was the next level of, of really managing the desk. And it was a pretty, it was, it was a wildly successful and wildly, um, you know, I always said, I knew that I had joined the Yankees when I joined J. Aaron, you know, having come from, you know, a UBS and Sumitomo bank and just seeing how they operated. And it was much more, you know, Sumitomo Japanese, UBS, the, um, you know, European view, which is much more relaxed. And you went to J. Aaron and it was like landing, you know, on the New York Yankee Marines, team, you know, where it was, it was about communication and it was about, you know, teamwork and 24-7 action, 
And it was a really great place to work. And I had the greatest time of my life. And I learned everything about being rigorous about trading that I know at 85 Broad Street and from the team that I that I worked with there. And those guys are still a big part of my network. Everybody that I worked with there is still somebody that I talk to about markets and trying to figure the world out today. That's what I was going to ask you listening to this is, you know, from that intense as that position was 24-7, literally, um, the access to information was second to none. I mean, you were seeing every side of the trade from every side of the globe, basically. So you had, you know, perfect 360 vision on the markets. Um, how do you trade today? How do you adjust your strategy in a world where we've seen this, for lack of a better expression, sort of financialization of the commodity markets? And I, I'm pretty sure there aren't 300 people standing down there on the floor, you know, anymore. It's probably like one computer in the middle of a room by itself. Can you talk a little bit about how you've had to adjust the way you uh, position in these markets now? Absolutely, Stephanie. Well, you just reinvent yourself a couple of times over the course of the decade, <laughs> you know, and, and um, you figure out how to keep a handle on the ball somehow, as we say in sports. And, um, you know, I would say, you know, it's wild that we talk about, we used to get the Gartman letter and the mm -hmm. Gartman letter is a big, it was a huge inspiration for the morning navigator because I used to rip that thing off the fax machine, mm. copy it for guys on the desk, pass it around. And it was pure gold. So, you know, that was part of our sort of information network. And we were talking on flip phones and things like that. So it was very much a different world. So you fast forward to, I think the most impactful thing, obviously, as you mentioned, is the exchange is closing, essentially, and you know, all that business being brought upstairs to electronics and mm -hmm. to over the counter desks, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, markets lost that sense they, they lost, they very clearly lost a sense of decorum. You know, and, and I can speak, you know, when I when I talk to my, you know, the old timers, we call ourselves, you know, about how things used to go and how things, you know, from from trading stock at the post to trading contracts in the ring, everything was very, even though things happened very fast, there was a very secure airtight procedure for how things went down. And that's why massive amounts of volume could be handled at, you know, a price and things like that. So now you realize that this whole mechanism now of say either holding up a print at the post or seeing prints go up on the exchange and knowing where that liquidity came from, knowing what phone that order came off of, was that a paper broker? Was that a fund selling more contracts? I mean, Stephanie, we were down to the point where when a broker used to come in and sell for a fund, our phone clerk would say, hey, here comes Johnny's guy selling for that mm -hmm. one client. And we'd say, okay, count him up. And so he, we, um, you know, your floor clerk would be like, okay, it looks like he shorted about 750 contracts. And you would make a note on your pad that this guy, this Johnny's customer, whoever you wanted to call him, was short 750 at this price. Mm -hmm. you know, and so you had that kind of information within wow. yeah, your, your, your uh, trading mechanism and your process. And now all of it is just flashes on the screen of price changes yeah. at you know and to to right. to us it looks like you know kind of pixie dust floating all over the place you know when they you used went to from playing poker and seeing everyone's cards to suddenly being blindfolded exactly well that's the transition from going you know from on on a desk at goldman sachs to off of a desk 
or, sure. or on any desk where you see, you know, I'm tr- sure. trying to make sure that we're drawing the same comparisons and stuff. But um, yeah, the change was pretty, was really dramatic, but it coincided with, I would say, you know, a really exciting time in the commodity markets again. So, so that, that, that's what I'm most excited about now. Like we, you know, we were, we had this period of uh, trading gold and, and um, oil where gold was 250 bit at 400 and it was really quiet and there wasn't a lot to do. You know, you were mm-hmm. kind of just within your world. Oil was 10 bit at 15 and nobody really cared. And so now we're in a place where they're flying all over the place and the mechanisms of watching them and liquidity and the mechanism, mechanisms of trading them is all different. We've got the presence of ETFs now that you have to keep track of. And so, you know, the world keeps evolving and I guess I'm kind of going all over the place, but I'm kind of just trying to get to the point where we've gone from, you know, this very sort of sacred mechanism of trading to now it's literally, you know, wild west trading where not as many people know what's going on and everything is happening on screens and everything is an anonymous. So it's a very, very different world trying to keep track. And you also have a whole new universe of players. Yeah, exactly. In addition to the whole class of retail players that have just joined in the commodity markets, and now you've got high frequency traders that are now you know visible in all across asset classes, and that's something that we never had to deal with. So you know that that's been a huge a huge change. And, and I mean, don't get me started on high frequency trading with it. We right. <laughs> we need a whole nother uh, podcast for that alone. Well, maybe we'll have to do a second one. <laughs> yeah. High frequency trading and commodities does seem like a kind of mismatch to me too. Tony, uh, if I'm getting my timings right, if you started in 94, you must have been there when um, Hamanakasan at Sumitomo, Mr. Copper, that whole thing unfolded. So there'll be people that won't, un- won't know that story because it, it's it's kind of gotten buried over the years and obscured by the mist of time. But it, I remember it as being a huge story, but I wasn't in the commodities market. So I'd love to hear how that played out and and the effect that had on commodity markets because i think we're about to enter an era where this information when applied to other markets might come in very handy for people yeah that's a great point it's a great point grant so um yasuo hamanaka was a basically a copper trader or a sumitomo bank trader that traded copper and traded on the lme and you know for years and years and years he was this character um that was the market he was like um, he was to metals what Enron was to energy, right? If Enron had an axe in energy, it was get the heck out of the way, right? If if Hamanaka or Sumitomo was doing something in base metals, it was always something visible, aggressive, usually done with the intention to mow the most people over. It was extremely, extremely powerful type of trading, right? Like you, like he would move the market right before your eyes. You'd see volume trading and you figure out what was going on. It's all this Sumitomo banks doing this and that. So, um, I guess sometime around, what was it? 96 or seven grand? 96. Yeah. Yeah. I think late, late, yeah. Late. Yeah. Probably 96. I think you're right. Yeah. So, so he got, he, you know, he, Sumitomo wound up disclosing that their losses were, were enormous, a couple of billion dollars. Uh, excuse me. So we should, we, she should, I, I should get to the, uh, you know, the lightning strike. Sumitomo discloses these losses. You find out that it's from Yasuo Hamanaka, their copper trader, right? And you find out that he had basically, um, you know, 
underhanded stuff going on all over the place, right? So he had positions on the exchange that he was hiding from the bank. He had physical positions of metal that he was hiding from the bank and from the trying to hide from regulators. And he would manipulate markets like nobody's business, essentially, right? It was like if you put the cat in charge of the canary and said, go ahead, you're allowed to trade, right? And so he would literally, he would, he was the most hated person in the markets because he seemed to always know the weak side of the market and was driving prices there. And then he later on found out that he was literally covering up massive losses while he was doing things like that and trying to, you know, take the risk off of his books and hide it. So all this came to roost finally in 96 or 97, like we said, um, Sumitomo disclosed the losses, Hamanaka goes to jail. And then the wild part is that our desk gets the job of unwinding the mess because Sumitomo is a sh uh, one of the largest stakeholders in Goldman Sachs, the private company at the time, and basically calls over the guys that run my division who were Lloyd Blankfein and Gary Cohen um, and, and has a conference with them and literally, you know, opens the kimono and says, look, we have a massive problem on our hands here. We have this massive mess that we've got to basically unwind. We've got a rogue copper trader on our books. And, you know, Lloyd and Gary made a deal with the heads of Sumitomo Bank that for a price, they would unwind, you know, the, the Sumitomo copper book. And, um, so that is, uh, that was another way that that entered our world was, you know, there were two, we had two phenomenal world-class base metal traders in at JR in London. Um, one is Greg Agron and the, the other one is Dylan Morgan, who are still good friends of mine. And so those guys were at the epicenter of having this massive job of unwinding the Sumitomo book. And so that entailed, you know, put, taking off spreads that this guy had on on the exchange that were impossible to trade. It had unwinding physical positions that were difficult to have moved. And to make a long story short, um, you know, Goldman Sachs finally unwinded the positions made a bloody fortune on it. We were the axe in the base metals markets for two years after this happened. Um, it was extremely tricky and watching these two rocket science traders trade out of it was was uh, something to behold is, is sort of the short story. And, and you know, I, I doubt that, uh, I don't know, I don't know that we'll get to see something like that again. You know, like it seems like the things that he was doing were or have been sort of cordoned off now you know what i mean like i don't think that you can take positions the sizes that he was taking now you know they've got much closer looks into margin and things like that so you know it, he was really just a rogue trader that was difficult to keep a hold of and he ran an illicit book for probably five to eight years and it was really really complicated to untangle yeah yeah it's, it's amazing so I, I remember it all unfolding very very well you know the the, the, the incredible thing as we sit here today you know is the, the part of that that resonated with me was the bit where the guy went to jail, right? Who would have thought that yeah. was an idea? Right? Right. I mean, yeah. You want to think how things have changed. Exactly. He's just a commodity trader. You know what I mean? He was he only right. blew up $2 billion. And this guy is, you know, spending a decade in jail. It's pretty unbelievable to think about versus today's uh, landscape. You're right, Grant. Yeah. yeah. And Nick, Nick Leeson, there's another one who actually ended up going to jail, but this, the, that's where it sort of ended, isn't it? <laughs> I don't think we do that anymore. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now, now we've got Archegos to un, 
you, you could go throw Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling in there as well, I guess. But oh, that, I guess that, that's that, still right, that, right. But that, you're right. That was all. They were all '90s. Those things, and then that's yeah. that's yeah. that's when it kind of went away. So, so Tony, t- tell us a little bit about this decision to go and uh, to go and trade, trade the tech bubble. Because <laughs> again, there are so many parallels here. There will be people here now sitting there with a great little job doing something in the financial industry, thinking, you know what, I could make it as a crypto trader. Yeah. So, so let's let's just, let's let's hear that story. Just to, even if it's just as a cautionary tale. What a great parallel, Grant. What a great parallel, right? So uh, I had been investing. Put it this way, Grant. It was my love for music that even attached me to technology back then, and it was very simple. I didn't have to stop at Tower Records anymore, which was right across from my apartment in Greenwich Village. I could just get on Amazon even while I was at work and have these new CDs sent to my apartment. Then I could download them on my computer, put them on my little disc player and go run around Central Park with these MP3s. So with that introduction, with, with, with that early grasp on what technology meant to music, I started investing in technology stocks and, you know, the most basic ones that were in front of me. And, you know, there were some of the, the, tech bubbly names, you know, like the world comms and then, you know, starting with, you know, at, at times Amazons and apples and world comms and JDS unifaces and getting into the more, you know, tech bubbly names. But, you know, those were all names that I had been saying like, Oh, this looks good and throwing some money at it. And at a level that I thought was a, you know, smart enough level as a trader. And I always remember that I was always nervous because as a trader at J. Aaron, you had to hold anything that you bought for 30 days. And so I would be like, oh man, you know, this is kind of kind of more of a trade for me, but you know, I, I think I'll be okay in 30 days. And I would expect like a, you know, hope for like a 15, 20% move in 30 days. And sometimes some of them were up 60 and 70%, you know, and I would be like, what the fuck just happened? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, buy more of this thing. You know what I mean? And so like that, that was what was working in the markets. And so from jumping around into the, you know, in and out of those names that were all going up and, you know, investing in some of them, I had made some money. The firm went public. Uh, I'd gotten an IPO award and my wife was at the firm as well at the time and also got an IPO award. And I kind of um, looked at her and I was like, well, this is my safety net. So I don't really, I, I feel like I can go jump ship now and go try to trade this market, which is just taking off now. This technology sector is unbelievable. It's going to be with us forever. It's going to go to the moon and, you know, live through all of that and made the very difficult decision to turn around to my boss and friend, Chris Carrera at the firm and say, um, you know, I'm done here and moving on. And he was like, you know, what in the world is going on? So we get to me sitting down and setting up a place called machine trading, which had a couple of investors and we levered a couple of million bucks, um, you know, literally just getting into names that were coming across the TV screen, right. Or names that were, we had this, we had the office set up in a day traders office because we used all their software and everything. And we had our own office in their office, but it was amazing to learn how these day traders operated. And it was a lot of them just sitting around, sitting around and keeping eye on a couple of names. And then when one or two of the those names would move, they would shout it out. Everybody in the room would buy it. It would go up $5 and they would all make a bunch of money. And so like sort of that was the atmosphere. I left the Goldman Sachs trading desk where the commodities were kind of sitting there growing hair on them, in my opinion. And I jumped into this world that was like, you know, exploding. And 
to get to the lesson part, you know, we still had a bullish view and things were really volatile. So we were able to make money for the first, you know, I would say six to eight months of my trading operation. And then the market started taking really serious nosedive. And there were some really sharp moves that would sort of wipe out any long positions that you may have had. You know, it was tough to get the joke that this thing was going to actually start tumbling now, um, you know, and turn your view from, oh, wait, maybe this stuff isn't going to the moon from here, you know, and, uh, you know, you got those lessons, you know, and then, like I said, the ultimate, the ultimate bubble lesson that I got was when commodities started to take off, you know, and, and see, you know, oil all of a sudden was a $20 item and you're like, what the? Gold is all of a sudden a five hundred dollar item, and now your head is snapping, and you're like, "What is going on over there?" You could sense yeah. that something had changed. Um, so that was, you know, that was the lesson, and, and I guess the lesson was over the last sort of year of working at that shop, we were banging our heads against the wall trying to break even every day, just cover our trading costs because markets were so whippy, and we didn't have complete information in anything. And, you know, it was just too hard to book big profits. So we walked away from the whole entire operation after, you know, 18 months. And I think everybody got away with their lives and nobody really lost any money or anything, anything material. And then that's when I pivoted into the sales side of equities grant and um, spent a decade doing that uh, kind of teaching equity traders with my commodity background, um, what was going on in that market at the time. And that turned out to be a good, uh, a good return on that education for sure, um, because it was valuable to have the commodity experience while now the equity commodities were exploding. So I could talk to people that were trading, you know, these, um, you know, base metal mines and things like that. And, you know, kind of opening their mind to what could happen in the commodity so that they could open their mind to what could happen in the stocks. And so I was able to afford them some pretty good advice, things like that. So that's sort of, I guess, the, the transition from commodities into equities for me. And the massive lesson that I got, you know, because I mean, the, you know, the, they probably the, the desk that I left printed money hand over fist for a decade. And that probably cost me God knows how much money. But, you know, it was it was what it was. I was a young guy and, I, I, you know, I wasn't looking for like the monster paycheck at the time. I was, you know, I wasn't looking for, you know, uh, you know, wealth building at the time. I was like, we are making a fortune trading these stocks like this is. The, the casino is breaking open here left and right. So let's catch all the money we can. Yeah. And so that was it, you know, and it was a little bit, it was definitely chasing that, that feeling of, you know, walk in the morning and make $15,000 a day, day trading and say, how many more days do I have to do that before I don't have to come in anymore? <laughs> right. You know, and you're like, that's a whole lot of money. And, and that was, uh, that was the power. That was the power that lured you over there and, and, and made you take that chance. And so, you know, it does, it, 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 that's why I, you know, get in fistfights with the laser eye guys, just trying to, you know, be honest and be me and, and, you know, cast a shadow of a doubt on the thing, God forbid, or, or, or say that I'm bearish, you know what I mean? And I'm like you, Grant, I'm somewhere in the middle of, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a denier, you know, I, I think it's somewhere, it may, it may fit somewhere in the macro picture, but I'm just very suspicious of it. And so, yeah, there, there's you're your, talking, you're talking crypto now. Yeah, I'm talking crypto. Yeah. It's kind of like we're just trying <laughs> to draw the parallel between me chasing the Nasdaq and a lot of yeah. people now chasing the crypto market. And I, 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 don't even, I don't even know if we can say chasing the crypto market. I mean, there's so much talent and, and uh, you know, money and wealth mm -hmm. in that space that, you know, they, they've created the world for themselves, whether or not it, it, it 
however, however it pans out, we should say. Well, it seems to me just listening to that, um, that you, like me, were very chastened by the experience of the dot-com bubble bust. I mean, I didn't go through what you did in terms of having my entire career, you know, really built around that um, bubble sustaining itself. But nevertheless, you know, I saw what happened. And I guess I'd be curious as to whether you are equally gun shy about getting along what you know is a bubble, even though you know, see, I sit here and watch these the central banks inflate new bubbles. And I think, well, I'm not going to participate in that because I know eventually it's going to burst. Meanwhile, you know, five years, six years, seven years later, there are people making bajillions of money who, you know, are laughing all the way to the bank. And I feel like a first class moron because (laughs) I see it, you know, it's going to burst one day. Therefore, I never touch it. Have you, how do you, how do you navigate the difference between being a long-term sort of um, being aware long-term of the impacts of these bubbles, but also being opportunistic in the near term? That's a skill I haven't uh, managed to uh, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> No, it's extremely difficult, Stephanie, but I'll say I got another, uh, I got another expensive lesson that I think lends itself to that. Um, you know, and I think it really just speaks to being an open-minded trader. So I'll say that in the, during the great financial crisis, I was an equity sales trader, but obviously I'm, I'm, I'm trading my own book, my own money, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And was able to make a really, you know, a, a wild chunk of money for, as a prop trader on the way down. Right. And I had this, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I was basically buying short-term S and P puts and the market would go down. I would cash out on these babies and it was literally an unbelievable experience. Oh, right. Well. So, right. Mm-hmm. Roll them out or, or, or just sit and wait for the next opportunity. And I didn't get the joke that when the fed was monetizing, like David Tepper did automatically that like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, this means buy everything. Right. And I was still like, Oh no, this thing is so over, you know? So my point will be that, I basically gave back all of the money that I made on the Mm. way down by trying to employ the same strategy and pick my spots. And I finally realized that something in the market changed, right? And so I spend my life now understanding what's changing and what's really driving the markets rather than saying, okay, this is my view and I'm applying it to the world, Mm. you know? And so that was my sort of evolution that that lesson was my sort of expensive lesson of evolution of sort of like, you've got to figure out how, what's driving this. And I'm different. I'm a momentum trader. So I, there are bubbles that I can jump mm-hmm. into and say, let's go, baby. I, I I'm early in this bubble and I know it. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's uh, you know, there's all different tempting bubbles like that in the market or sectors. We can call it like that of the markets that are exploding. So when you have a, a little bit of experience with some old bubbles, you can, can sort of or old rallies, you can manage these. And I think that once you get the handle on what is going on that that I've listened to Grant discuss with and you discuss with so many people, you know, at the Federal Reserve and all the central banks around the world about the liquidity that they're providing, about to me, the biggest story in finance last year was the Fed balance sheet going from four to seven and a half trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're looking at it now, right? We're, we're looking at what that right. is doing. So, you know, I find, you know, when you, when you catch on to this is what's happening, this is what's driving the market. And so that, that sort of pivots you into the next mindset for, for however you want to face what's going on in the stock market right now. 
Yeah, don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. <laughs> you know, go along with it. Now we've got, you know, we've got this beautiful trade lining up where we've got commodity tailwinds. And, mm-hmm. you know, this looks like we could be headed, for, in my opinion, to a significant commodity super cycle, dare I say. Um, but I do dare say, because when I look at, like, you know, the predicament that we're in in copper right now. Right. I mean... This something's got to give, right? Something's got to give. This is like, you know, yeah. this is like we're yeah. walking into the grocery store and saying, hey, we got a team, but we got an army outside we got to feed. And they're pointing you to the shelves and they're saying, well, we got a rack of bagels and some ham left. And that's about it. You right. know, but and you that- also, we do know mathematically that as we get to the second half of the year, the economic data is all going to soften. So, I mean, we're kind of, we're at that peak right now. So it just seems like synchronous, synchronous that, copper, you know, all-time record highs at the same time that we're seeing 22% increase in consumer spending, you know, strongest retail sales in the history of mankind, at levels from which we always mean revert. I'd be interested in your thought about the short-term, navigating the short-term there. Well, I'm the other way, Stephanie. I'm looking for copper to go to prices that it hasn't traded yet. Right. I, I feel like we're going into right. the, you know, because Biden and Biden is now going along with everyone with the Green Revolution. And, you know, we are getting our carbon emissions down. We're going to go through this exercise of getting that whole trade on the tape. It is going to mm-hmm. cost more natural resources than are available to do it. And we're sitting here at 10K LME bid in copper. And so I'm saying, you know, there's a line of buyers out the door. I don't see it really mean reverting because this is, you know, maybe as strong as the data gets. You know, I see mm-hmm. that we're opening up industries. I see the housing market on fire. I see that we're going green all over the world and I'm trying to count up how much copper that's going to cost. And like I said, mm-hmm. take a look on the shelves. It ain't there. And that's why the copper curve has gone straight backwardated now versus where it was six months or a year ago. And if you've seen copper go backward dated, like like a thousand dollars backward dated, you know that you ain't seen nothing yet. You know, so mm. so this is what I expect to happen. And I think there's going to be a period of time this year where we're going to see copper and a few other commodities trade like Bitcoin when it was trading, mm. you know, bid no offer. And I don't know. That's just that. That's my view, Stephanie. And I, I know that I could be wrong. And and you know, I'll be the I'll be the first one to be proven wrong. But that's how I'm looking at it from here. Well, this is probably me now being too cute about the near term because I'm 100% with you about a commodity super cycle just from the standpoint of a preference for hard assets versus paper and uh, this green energy thing. I totally agree with you. It's just icing on the cake because that's going to drive up the cost of extracting everything um, and moving things, you know, freight and everything. But um, in the near term, I just wonder if we if the fever doesn't break a little bit, who knows? But um, I think that's, yeah, that's, it's fascinating to see commodities actually start to get some some popular attention. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you saw the, the video that went around Finchwood the other day of that gal, Kyla, I think her name is, uh, that did the video of the commodity boom now. And it, it's, it's, it's a great sign of the times. I'll send it to you guys. But she, huh. she makes kind of funny videos and they're very, very amusing. But she's cutting on essentially the fact like, oh, look, all of a sudden we've got this natural resource boom and there's shortages <laughs> everywhere and bottlenecks everywhere and exploding prices and, you know, all things like that. But you're right. I mean, it's on the front page of the news and it feels pretty sustainable to me, unfortunately. 
Mm-hmm. To me, the interesting part of this, well, there's a couple of interesting parts. Of I think we, we're, we're going into this, obviously, with a ton more in terms of liquidity. Obviously, balance sheets, is, the M2 has done what it's done over this last year, accelerated crazily, and yet we're going into this. Let's suppose it's a mini boom, right? You're having that come along at the time when the stimulus is just going to keep coming out, and yet everything, and I mean everything, is predicated on this being transitory, right? If this isn't transitory, then we have a massive, massive problem on our hands. So, you know, Tony, if you're right, and and I have to say, this this is, I I think there are about two places that Stephanie and I disagree on just about anything. This is (laughs) probably one of them, and it's purely a question of timing. I think you're right. I think, yes, the comps are, are easy right now and not helping, but I think the surprise is going to come when those comps are supposed to ease off again and they don't. But let's think that through. What happens if we get to that point where people think the comps are going to, okay, we should start seeing this peter out now, and it doesn't? How do you see that kind of rattling through commodity markets? Because there will be a moment where the people that were waiting either to cover shorts or to to do something were waiting for those comps, and, and it feels like we could see like I said, some real fireworks at that point. That's exactly why, why Grant, I say that, you know, we're going to see some of these commodities trade like Bitcoin. You know, it's going to be trading like people are all after it and they don't know what price it's going to. They just know they have to get their hands on some. Um, what What's wild to me is seeing, um, you know, the, the, the stimulus plans that Biden has come out with. You know, he's essentially come out with three multi-trillion dollar plans and it seems like this is going to be de rigor for this administration, right? To the point where I'm waiting for him to turn around and say, okay, we're going to do 2 trillion racial equity. <laughs> you know, we're going to pass this around and pay for slavery. Uh, now we're going to do 2 trillion, you know, whatever. I am concerned that what that is going to do, obviously we're going to run our debt pile up to the stars. I think that we have got a pretty clear dollar nosedive coming ahead of us. And I'm, I know I don't like to get on the existential side of the dollar battle. You know what I mean? Like, I, don't, right, I, don't, right. I, I just don't like to take part in that. I just use it as one of the speedometers on my dashboard so that I could tell what the hell's going on in the world. So I see it on a path going lower just because I see the biggest economy in the G20 heaping on the dead pile and heaping on the Fed balance sheet and showing no end in sight. That's the thing that, you know, Grant, I got it from an interview that you, um, two things that, that you've heavily affected me on in this conversation are, I always tell people that via Grant Williams, I've been Zuloft and Dedenized. Right. And so Zuloft means when you were talking with Bill Fleckenstein and Felix mm-hmm. Zuloft about, you know, what he thinks the balance sheet could, Fed balance sheet could go to. And I'm sitting here listening, you know, with my ear, you know, the earphones going into my ear. I can't wait to hear what he says. And he goes, I don't know, 40, 50 trillion dollars. And I'm like, (laughs) he took the breath out of my lungs. You know what I mean? And Bill Fleckenstein goes, oh, and Grant goes, wow. You know what I mean? And it was like, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? Like, I think that's the way we have to start thinking. I I think that's the way that we have to start getting prepared for because, you know, four to seven in one fell swoop was a statement. And I feel like that's going to be used to address everything. So, and, you know, the other story is being Dadenized and is uh, sort of just being a fan of holding a lot more physical gold and using that as the bank 
for when I want other assets to go peel off a few kilos for my dollars and go buy the other asset. But using the bank is, was a brilliant idea that Tony did, uh, that Grant drew out of Tony in a great interview. So if I think, if I'm trading from a perspective of a $40 trillion balance sheet, then all the prices on the screen are wrong. <laughs> You know, so, so, you know, if, 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 you know, sometimes the world looks very 40 trillion balance sheet and sometimes it doesn't. So that's why trade is not going to be linear, but that's been sort of the basis of my trading. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of thing that's opened my eyes to, you know, several thousand points ago that, yeah, there's no alternative than stocks. <laughs> you know, that, that there's nothing, there's nowhere else for all this money to go. That's going to go right into the stock market. And so I guess that's how, um, I don't know, that's how I'm sort of, riffing on that idea if that's fair grant yeah it's, it's totally fair the, the 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 big problem obviously is bitcoin can trade like bitcoin's trading really without any repercussions whatsoever but mm -hmm. if corn starts doing that right and right. if sugar starts doing that and if hogs start doing that we have a major major problem on our hands yeah exactly i was on with one of my clients uh, that's a fund manager in singapore and you know i'm talking about how bullish i am commodities and he's more of a fixed income and rates guy and he's like well isn't that just a short treasury trade really like don't you really just want to be short treasuries and i'm like no because the federal reserve can right. control a uh, treasury can control the treasury market nobody's going to come up with the corn that we need when there's you right. know four billion chinese in line to buy some and there's not a great crop in new york and there's not a, i mean in the midwest and there's not a great crop in brazil and oh shit, now what do we do right so that's that's the big concern grant and 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 i think you know i'm i've tried to pivot my book in a way to hedge it but you're starting to see food inflation creep into the picture. You're starting to see the grain markets go. And, you know, if you believe in trends and trends changing, I mean, we're, we just came out of a 10-year bear market in grains mm -hmm. where I've been speaking at grain conferences and the farmers have been getting absolutely mauled by the consistently falling price of wheat and corn. And now all of a sudden this thing has picked itself up off the bottom. We've got buyers in line. We've got bad conditions. And I feel like we could be pivoting into a 10-year bull market in grains. Mm -hmm. So if this is if I'm trading from the perspective of this is year one of a 10-year bull market in grains and the perspective of, well, copper is about to go through LME 10K in, I don't know, five, four, three, two, whatever, you know, and, and I don't know, one week, five weeks, four weeks. Um, that that's how I'm able to sort of adjust my book for what I think is going to happen in commodities, which I think is going to be sustained commodity inflation. I don't know whether they let it creep into headline inflation because that seems to be against that. That seems to be bad for business. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, there yeah. are going to be ways that we can at least hedge, you know, with, with some grain ETFs or some other exposure to some, you know, to maybe some ag companies that we can potentially hedge this food inflation, which is just one of the more th recent themes that I've been trying to get into as I have been exposed to metals and oil already for quite a while. So the irony behind the, the food and energy trade, or I just yeah. lumped energy in there, but the, yeah. the food price um, is that the higher those prices go, the greater the rationale for more fiscal and monetary stimulus because you're hurting the people who can least afford to pay the higher prices. Therefore, we must hand them a fresh batch of checks, which will have to be monetized by the Fed. So this bull cycle in commodities actually, instead of 
being a rationale for the Fed to raise rates is a rationale for them to continue to expand their balance sheet and pump ever increasing amounts of liquidity. So it's, you know, you can see this spiral going infinitely into the sky, couldn't you? <laughs> oh, oh, it absolutely gets scary, Stephanie. I totally know what you mean. You know, I, I don't, you, you read stories about hyperinflation and, you know, you know that it's good for nobody, you know, and I mean, we're already now we're sitting in an administration that's sort of adding stimulus on the way to writing the stimulus check. They're, you know, expanding the, right. the, the program while they're, as they're signing it. And so with that as the driving force now, there's really no telling what could happen here. And, and you know, I, I what's so appealing about this trade not as much the argument to me, but the trade is that there are still plenty of people on the other side that are like, no, yes. debt is deflationary. And, you know, there's so much debt around and that that's, you know, that's really going to keep things in check. But when you look at the, the nominal prices of things, none of them are at prices that anybody's going to be afraid to pay yet. Right. Like like gasoline, at you know, oil is rallied. I don't, I don't know how many, you know, whatever percent you want to call it from zero to sixty dollars. Oil is still gasoline, still three dollars at the pump in the United States. Mm -hmm. Right. So so nothing is even at a level yet that that's hurting us where, to the point where people are going to change behavior. Right. So we'll eventually get to that point where, you know, five dollar gas seems to be the behavior breaker where people are like, oh, no long trip this summer or something like that, you know, because gas is too expensive. But this is just sort of how this uh, trade is evolving. But, you know, from, from that perspective of we're going green movement that's going to take the base metals higher, we're causing inflation that should be bullish for precious metals. We've now got a situation in grains that's bullish for grains. Lumber is trading like Bitcoin, right? Almost yeah, impossible yeah. to discuss. They're putting the hammers and nails down on on you know, home builder sites because it's too expensive to frame the houses at this point. You know, it's changing the whole cost structure of the house. So, you know, it, it's really tough to tell. And then, you know, when you've got a Federal Reserve that, you know, you and I can look at the data and say, my God, this is 50% off the lows. This commodity is up 80%. Uh, oil is up 60%, uh, 30% on the year already. Gas is up 40% on the year. And the Fed chairman's going, seems transitory to me. Seems transitory. I don't, you know. You know, and so it, when it seems like there's going to be no reaction from them, there's enough of the other side that's fading this and no, nobody really believes or understands what $10 gasoline and a $25 box of Cheerios means, you know, until we get there. But like you said, then we're going to have another stimulus round. So it's right. really tough to decide. It's really tough to decide what the, uh, what the way out of this is other than to try to hedge yourself as best as possible by owning assets. The thing I wrestle with is it seems to me like the commodity markets are one thing and gold is something separate, you know, like everything yeah. else seems to be soaring. And to me, that sort of suggests that maybe people haven't come around to our conclusion, which is that this isn't just ad hoc stimulus. This is going to be our future. We're going to see fiscal uh, stimulus bill after bill after bill perpetually, the recurring, non-recurring stimulus that'll be monetized by the Fed. It seems like maybe that's the intellectual hurdle. I don't know what it is that's holding gold back. Do you have any thoughts about why gold is so woefully underperforming in this broader commodity cycle? Yeah, I do. And, and nobody likes them. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I do. You're amongst uh, friends here, Tony. I want to 
You're amongst friends. Come on, me. Well, I keep saying to people that, you know, I, I, I've been observing. I'm a price action junkie, right? I love to sit in front of the screens and watch the things trade all day long. And so I've been observing. There was periods of time where I'm observing selling in gold and buying in Bitcoin and selling in gold and buying in Bitcoin, right? And my, my precious metal ninja circles are passing around the total ETF gold holdings, right? That are in a straight line down. We've gone from 110 million ounces to now under 100 million ounces and saying somebody is VWAPing out of gold, right? Like somebody's got gold on their pad and they're like, okay, we're getting out of gold. And I'm seeing coincidental sell-offs in gold and flurries in Bitcoin. And this was happening more when Bitcoin was proceeding up through the 30s and 40s mm-hmm. and gold was backing off from two, above 2K, you know? So I feel like people are legitimately taking gold holdings down and saying, so we can hold this as a hedge or we can hold this as a hedge and it might triple. You know, it's like, what's our mm-hmm. upside in gold? Maybe we've got a 30% upside on this thing that's kind of supposed to be our hedge. And so that's nice, but we can also put some money into this thing that might be a five bagger, you know, and it's acting like an inflation hedge. And it also acts like one when we make it act like one and sort of sell gold when real rates get compressed and go buy more Bitcoin. So I felt like that there's been a clear pivot of this is an inflation hedge. You know, I listen to Mike Novogratz talk about it as an inflation hedge and I hear Mm -hmm. the institutions are getting into it and they're getting into it, obviously, because it's an inflation hedge. So I feel like there's been people peeling out of the gold market in order to get their hands on Bitcoin. And I do believe that, you know, that that may last for a little while, but I still love the fact that, you know, gold is sort of just hanging around where it's hanging around. And I don't think it looks to be in any danger. So um, I think that we're just in a phase, Stephanie. I think we're just in a phase. I think it was too obvious to hold gold as the inflation trade while the Fed Uh just, you know, lopped its balance sheet up there. And I think everybody probably had it on. And I feel like somebody big finally said, you know what, let's take a slice of this and put it into cryptocurrency and get it out of this barbarous relic and go from here. And so I can't, I can't draw, you know, I don't have anything but, you know, theory on that. And so, but I do think that that sort of rhymes with what's gone on. Um, And it's been interesting that, you know, gold, gold, you know, even what was amazing to me is that even on weeks that gold was up, the total gold ETF holdings were going down. Right. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was somebody that's like, you know, offloading an asset. That's somebody that's just like, yeah, yeah. Into the rally. We're selling GLD ETF because I'm getting this thing off my pad. So that's just what I've been thinking about it. I think that silver is hung in uh, pretty well. And silver is interesting because there's this other, uh, you know, uh, this other community that are trying to pull off this short squeeze in silver because they claim that the London, um, you know, banks don't really have the metal, et cetera, et cetera. And that may be true. I, I, I'm not arguing with them. I'm long silver. So that if it goes up, all of their, all of the right. theories <laughs> is fine with me, right. but it's sort of, I don't like to trade. I, I can't trade with that sort of conspiracy theory in the market right. with these guys thinking that silver is about to triple because there really is no silver out there. So the metals markets are kind of, I'm saying that's kind of a, uh, to me, that is a distortion. A little bit. Mm. So we're seeing the crypto uh, sort of, uh, you know, crypto is occupying everybody's attention. The crypto distraction and the silver distortion is how I'm kind of explaining gold. Mm. And, and that's how I've had that conversation with people. So you guys may join the crew that don't really like that explanation. No, I think that's a perfectly apt explanation. The only problem with 
that is a rationale, not from your standpoint, but for the people who are dumping gold to buy crypto, is that it also trades very much like a risk asset. You know, right. one day it's an inflation hedge, the next day it's the preeminent risk asset. So it's like hard to know what you really are investing in. Yeah, totally. Right now. It was it was absolutely spooky when Bitcoin had one of its biggest drawdowns off the highs, and the equity market was happened to be lower that day, and people on FinTwit are like, "Is is crypto?" telling us risk off in the markets? Is that really what's going on here? Is crypto leading the risk off charge? And you're like, God, that might be the case. I freaking hope that, <laughs> you know? But you never know. You want to just let the market speak to you rather than uh, rather than telling them what's going on, yeah. 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 So, so Tony, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the, the commodities that you, I mean, I think I've got a pretty good understanding of the commodities you think are probably going to perform the best in this, but just just walk us through your your thoughts on on the commodities you think that we should be owning, and and any that you think probably may not get caught up in this. Yeah, I'm going to stick. Uh, my, my first my first pick is still something um, like base metals, and I, I've 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 got a pretty I got pretty good exposure to base metals, metal base metals and mining. I like the XME ETF. I like Freeport yeah. McMoran. I like your Alcoas. I like US Steel. I like things like that because I'm I'm someone that can believe strongly in an industrial recovery, both here and around the world. I see the the carbon capture business exploding, and I know all about the commodities that are going to be necessary for that. And it's mostly metals and mining out of the ground. Um, when you look at all of the batteries that they're going to have to be created and the, and the electric power that's going to have to be generated, I mean, it's off the charts, the amount of base metals. I wrote a paper called Green Challenger, which is kind of challenging the green movement, saying that it's not going to be successful. We're not going to get to you know, the emission levels that they think we're going to get to. They're just lobbing these 20-year targets on us so that they can start imposing the plan to get us there. And then we don't know, but the reality is, is that there's not enough strength in wind and solar to power our country, our nation, our globe, however you, however you want to put it. And getting an airplane off the ground is a non-starter, you know, with, <laughs> in, wind, in wind and solar and electric. So I don't know how far we're ever going to go. Um, you know, we'll see what this push, where this push takes us. But I, I see it in literally absorbing an enormous amount of metal from Mother Earth. And when I pair that for the trade side, with the fact that I see a really weak dollar uh, throughout this, it makes me really bullish base metals. So if I'm bullish base metals and I feel like they have been performing and XME has been performing, like if you look at the top sectors, leading sectors on the year this year, you know, it's energy, it's home builders, it's banks, it's transports, and then it's XME um, and a lot of metal stocks. So I feel like that's going to be one that's going to be really relevant, especially as the dollar weekends. Um, as you know, Grant, I've been a big energy bull. I mean, I was an oil bull from $15 on the way down and then on the way back up through 40 and I'm still bullish as I was back then because I still believe that no matter what, what's going on with the U.S. oil situation now with Biden canceling the pipeline and now we're going to ship the, uh, the oil and gas down on rails and trucks. So we're going to start burning more energy. I think energy prices are going higher and I love absolutely love the way companies like ExxonMobil are pivoting right into the carbon capture business, which could have been, you know, basically drawing a bullseye on them to put them out of business, mm -hmm. right? If they're coming after fossil fuels, they're coming after what ExxonMobil knows yeah. how to explore and produce. And they're like, 
you know what? We can bury all the CO2 you want under the Gulf of Mexico, by the way, and that will cost you, hang on, right? <laughs> right. And so they've pivoted right into this business. And so now they're going to be pulling energy out of the ground to fuel the trucks and, and you know, to service everything. And they're going to be turning around to the, you know, the chemical companies and the other fossil fuel companies and saying, you know, directly send us your carbon emissions so that we can bury it under the Gulf. And so I think that that is going to be another brilliant profit center for them. So I think that the energy companies, more more likely the big cap energy companies like your Exxons and Chevrons that are going to pivot brilliantly into this carbon capture business with the fossil fuel business, they're waiting when we realize that we're never going to get to 50% emissions or whatever the hell the goal is by the Biden administration. And so that's why I like those companies a lot. So if I had to rank them, it's definitely metals and mining and then the oil exploration companies that have capabilities in carbon capture. And like I said, I am also talking my book because this is kind of the order that I've gotten into them, but they've also been performing kind of in that order too. So that's why I'm keeping metals out front. And lastly, man, you got to figure out how to get some ag exposure Mm -hmm. because it just takes too long to pivot. You know, the farming is a slow moving process and it takes a really long time to pivot crops into, you know, the ones that are in more demand all of a sudden this year. And they're all trying to game whether they need more corn this year because the price is going higher faster than wheat is. And, you know, they're, they're figuring out their soybeans and trying to figure out how to space all this out. And the reality is if mother nature doesn't comply, then all of it is, you know, it, it's, it's kind of moot. It's not moot, but it's, you know, you take what you get as a farmer in terms of crop uh, production. So, you know, it's just too, as a commodity trader, that's the big thing that I fear uh, there being shortages of. And I fear that I, I can wake up in the middle of the night seeing grain prices going up into the double digits. And, you know, I feel like that's where we could be heading with the cocktail that we've got brewing and it won't be linear. So I think ag exposure, I'm not a tech chaser, Grant. I think that as yields go higher, I think that they're finally going to struggle a little bit versus the other sectors. So I'm I'm still sticking with a really heavy natural resource book and um, kind of weighting it in kind of metals, energy, and then grains. But I got to be there. That That's the thing. You got to be in all natural resources for the next year. It's not good news for the restaurant industry as they face, look down the barrel of an increase in the minimum wage and higher food costs. And I mean, if anything, this is just the perfect storm of awfulness for them. About it that we've got, you know, money supply, you know, going through the roof and we haven't even had, you know, the outlet opened up yet. And so now we're going to open up the economies and people are going to, for a while, have the money to spend on the inflated costs of things that have gotten more expensive because of COVID. And I got a feeling that that's going to be the costs are still going to go higher and it might be much difficult for, you know, much more difficult to pay for them over the years if they remain high. So that's why yeah. I'm really nervous. You know, if, if, if trades go in the way that hurts the most people, it yeah. seems really, really vulnerable to a sharp commodity rally right yeah. now. I mean, that's where just to draw the nuance, Grant, I, you know, I think you and I have the disagreement on inflation. It's that. I see, I totally believe that you see that increase in uh, commodity prices. The question is, is that, does that transmit broadly? I mean, if restaurants can't even survive in that environment, 
you've got a pretty powerful disinflationary force on the discretionary side. We'll see how it fleshes out, but you know, maybe we just do do another two trillion in stimulus and everyone gets a check and they go to Dunkin' Donuts. We'll do a two trillion <laughs> we'll do a two trillion inflation relief bill. The donut relief bill. The donut relief bill. Man, wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? Uh, that's one bill I would get behind. Yeah, that, just the, the, the first unanimous vote in House history. Um, Tony, what about the what about the bearish side of the coin? What 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 do you, what are you bearish on um, away from the the commodities? Uh, well, I keep picking away at solar stocks, Grant. I'll be honest with uh-huh. you. I feel like the timing for solar stocks to me told a really clear narrative. And I feel like they saw their best days as Joe Biden was getting inaugurated, right? And, and everybody knew that, okay, this is happening now. You know, we made it through that, you know, annoying, horrible election period where solar stocks were still trying to press their highs as the Biden administration is getting pulled to win the presidency and the whole thing is going to be bearish for energy and so bullish for solar stocks. And if you look at it, they made a perfect triple top right as Biden was getting inaugurated and we knew he was going to become president and then inaugurated. So then they finally backed off. So I still think that that sector is might have seen its best days because, you know, which I, you know, I do. I'm a big channel check guy and there have been several companies around here trying to sell solar door to door. Yeah. Right. And I, you know, some part of me says, you know, I know that they're on a mandate, but how good could things be for their industry if they're selling it door to door? Right. Right. So when I put all that timing together of, you know, everybody had to be in solar stocks, you know, ready for the Biden administration. And then they finally backed off. To me, that's a thing that could be a, you know, like a real short term top. And they finally, you know, they've we've taken the air out of them and they have backed off to moving average support. And now they're in danger of breaking down. And there are actually some problems under the hood with some of the solar companies that are in the solar ETF in China. So some of the Chinese listed mm-hmm. solar companies are having really, really bad earnings situations. And um, so I'm still kind of bearish that sector. I feel like the best days were behind it. Um, now it's going to come down to performance. And I feel like they may suffer against expectations. That's all. Oh, and then the, the only other sector from there that I'm looking at, uh, Grant, from the bear side is I'm a little bit nervous for airlines. Okay. I feel like there's like a number of, of challenges that they could face. Um, you know, obviously the rising cost of jet fuel is, is one of them that they may wind up passing off to the consumer. You know, we may have, there still may be a sector of the population that's hesitant to fly, you know, with COVID. There may be a pushback against uh, vaccine passports if they try to make that, you know, part of regulation, flying regulation. So that that's just something where you notice that the airlines had traded in this tight range. We had a huge breakdown into the lockdown, obviously, when nobody was flying anywhere. And now they've retraced right back up to that range and they're starting to struggle again right where they sort of left off. And I feel like if any sector is set up to sort of fail, it would it might be something like airlines, which sort of either can't get, you know, can't get the traffic back up or can't get the cost down cheap enough to allure uh, enough flyers or maybe there's another wave of coronavirus, God forbid, or something like that. I just feel like there's some risk to the airline stock from these prices, but it's not, uh, I'm trying to trade grant from a really trade everything from a bull perspective. They're just one or two sectors that, that stick out to me that, that may be overvalued in the short term just because of the timing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. Tony, yeah. it's been absolutely, uh, it's been a tremendous, the, the time has flown by. We've, we've, yeah. we've sailed yeah. past an hour here um, <laughs> and, and uh, with plenty of stuff left on the table. So as Steph said earlier on, you, you will have to come back. I, I'm going to, 
I'm going to go and stockpile Cheerios. I heard you say $25 box of Cheerios. That's, that's, that ruins my world in a hurry. So I, I, I don't want to do that. Exactly. That's um, what but, I was saying. Hedges, 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 Grant. Yeah, exactly right. Well, listen, Tony, before we let you go, just for the people out there that are new to you and what you do and uh, the stuff you talk about, just let them find out how they can uh, get in touch and, and a little bit more about what you do. Yeah, sure, Grant. My, my uh, website is tgmacro.com. Um, that's the name of my company. I write a note called The Morning Navigator uh, four days a week. And it's got a, a tremendous and tremendously rewarding following in it and a lot of great people that I've gotten to know. Um, you can send me an email if you want to reach me at tony at tgmacro.com. You can sign up for any of my products, either The Morning Navigator or my institutional level product called The Point Lookout Package, which includes a little bit more of a research, uh, 12 research notes a year, one per month. Um, and a Slack group that I've developed that my uh, sort of community has been digging into to discuss markets on a daily basis. So that's what the higher level institutional group packages. The newsletter is $800 a year. The institutional package is 2,500 tgmacro.com. And it's all there for your viewing pleasure. <laughs> and uh, it, it wouldn't be 2021 without your Twitter handle, mate. That's for sure. Oh, sure. Sorry. It's, it's at tgmacro. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, people probably would have guessed, but hey, listen, we, we yeah. may as well lead the horse to water. Why not? Yeah. He did that yeah. without hesitation. Yeah. Yes, very... exactly right. Something, <laughs> something, we can all learn something from this, Stephanie. Pumbaugh. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, mate, it's been, it's been a real joy. Thanks so much for doing this. And uh, hopefully we'll get to have a, have a beer in person again soon. It's been way too long since we did that. It has been way too long, Grant. I'm looking forward to it. I can't thank you enough for having me on here. As you know, if there was no Grant Williams doing his work out there, there would be no Morning Navigator. And so I want to thank you for being an inspiration for so many years. And Stephanie, it's well, a pleasure you. to meet you and discuss markets. You too. So much fun. Thank you, Take guys. care, buddy. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you, Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tony. See you, mate. Bye. Cheers. Well, Steph, I have to say... That was really, really interesting. That was really interesting. I loved, I loved the stories at the beginning there. I found yeah. those really educational. And I think people are, are going to be listening to that and on their own, drawing the parallels, let alone with Tony forming them. But the, the other stuff on the commodities, uh, this to me is the big thing. And everyone needs to be thinking about this. No, no matter who we talk to, yeah. whether it's you and me talking to them or me and Fleck or me on my own, this, this subject keeps like elbowing its way to the front of the crowd and standing at the front of the stage just staring up at you going, I'm here, you know? Well, it is the one check on reckless monetary and fiscal policy is a resurgence in inflation, whether it's simply at the commodity level or if it gets broadly transmitted, it doesn't really matter. That is really the only thing that stands in the way of continuing to run the engines, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely right. And it, and it feels as though they need to have a plan for what to do when it shows up. Because even if even if this isn't the inflationary change and we do get another bout of deflation, we, I think we all can agree that inflation is the future. Mm -hmm. I just wonder, because when it does arrive, steps are going to have to be taken because we can't stomach 6 7 8% inflation. It just does, the, this entire construct of our world does not function that way now. Absolutely not. And... It, you know, Tony made the point that no one benefits, no one does well in hyperinflation. That's true with one single exception, and that is a highly indebted government that, yes. you know, can manipulate the level of interest rates. Um, so that's the problem is that something will need to be done, but will policymakers have the intestinal fortitude 
to do that. I, I for one, am going to remain skeptical. I, 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 I was going to say, that may be the most rhetorical question ever asked. <laughs> oh, man. I, I would fail a uh, test on how to phrase a yeah. poll question, for sure. Yeah. Th- Is yeah. the government exactly. reckless? Yes or no? Yes. Is the government reckless? Yes or hell yes? <laughs> Oh, oh boy. Well, man. look, Steph, it's been another great hour and change. Um, I, I have to say, I do love all these times I get to sit and chat with you. And to have Tony there ringside as well to join in the fun was um, was was really, really good fun. So thanks it for doing this again. It's been, it's been enjoyable. Well, thanks for including me on that. It was nice to meet him and have the conversation. Absolutely. Well, look, before we go, all that remains, here's the bit where you need to get ready. You ready oh, for yeah. this? All that remains <laughs> is to me to thank pressure. everybody for listening and uh, let people know that if they don't follow me on Twitter, they can do so quite easily by looking for at T-T-M-Y-G-H. Drum roll, please. And I'm at S-Pomboy. Yes, you are. Did I get it you right? Are. I you did. Like a question. You nailed it. You nailed it. <laughs> well, that can be your poll question. I'm oh, S Pombo. Okay. Question mark. Yes, you are. <laughs> Actually, I should just put a question mark at the end of the handle, and that would make yeah. it perfect. <laughs> yeah. All right, Stephanie Pomboy. Well, you carry yeah. on being super terrific and happy, and I same. will speak to you again next time. Pip pip and cheerio. Toodaloo. Oh, cheerios. That reminds me. I must go stockpile. Oh yes. Nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.